This is episode number 205 with Olympian and USA national champion Nick Simmons. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. Very excited about our guest today. His name is Nick Simmons, and I just got wind of him and learned about him a few weeks ago when I was watching the USA Outdoor National Championships where he won the 800 meter, and it was incredible to watch him start in last place and come from behind in the last 150 meters. And I actually found out that I actually competed with him 10 years ago at the National Championships, Division Three National Championships. Uh, in 2005, where I was competing as a decathlete, and he, he was competing in the distance events. He is a seven-time NCAA champion at Willamette University Division Three school. He's a six-time USA outdoor champion at the 800, two-time world champion finalist, 2012 and 2008 Olympic team member, third fastest American ever in the 800-meter dash. He's broken many other records. He's an incredible guy. And uh, one quick fact about him, he is 99.9% faster than the entire population. Pretty cool. He loves all things outdoors, hiking, mountain, climbing, fishing, hunting. He grew up in Boise, Idaho. And we had an incredible conversation talking about what it means to be one of the best in the world, what it means visually, mentally, emotionally, physically to give 110% at one vision, one goal for decades, and how to stay consistent over that time and continue to get better, even when the doubt creeps in, when age creeps in, when your body starts to, to wear down, how do you stay consistent and how do you live your life at such a high level to achieve that? Also talking about some of the entrepreneurial things that he does as an athlete, seeing as on the USA team, no one really gets paid anything. So how he's been able to build his own brand and make a full-time living through creative entrepreneurial ways. I'm very excited about this episode. Make sure to head back to lewishouse.com slash 205 to get the full details about how you can connect with Nick over on Twitter and Instagram and everywhere online. Also about his companies that he's involved with, his sponsors, and all that other good stuff. So make sure to check him out. Follow his journey. Again, share this with your friends if you enjoy it over at lewishouse.com slash 205. And without further ado, let's dive into this with the one and only... Nick Simmons. Welcome everyone back to the School of Greatness podcast. Very excited about today's guest. I just become aware of him about a few weeks ago when he won, I believe it was the national championships, the USA national championships in Oregon uh, in the 800 meter. And we've got Nick Simmons on. How's it going, Nick? I'm good, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm very excited. And I before I dive into your fun facts, I got to see if... We might have actually competed on the same track a decade ago. Really? Now I'm trying to I'm trying to see if we we're at the same time. You, know, you were born in 1983, correct? That's correct. And I was born in '83, and my senior year, I decided to go back. I was a football player, and my senior year, my whole career, I wanted to be an all-American athlete. And I played Division three football, and I broke a world record one year, and I didn't make it that year. And I was like, you know what? I can't do it in a team sport because we weren't 
good enough. We didn't win enough games for me to really get that credibility. And I said, you know what? I'm going to try the decathlon and see if I can be an All-American. So I trained for six months in the decathlon, and I went to a Division three school. And um, and I was at the which school were you at? I was at Principia College, a very small school in Illinois. Okay. And and two thousand five. I would imagine that your was it your senior year you would have been in uh, in uh, Wisconsin Oscars for nationals. I, it was actually in Waverly, Iowa. So I don't know if that was the same year. Oh, you okay. Were there. But did yeah, you go yeah. train there at the? I mean, it was a long time ago. Yeah. So I was. I was class of 06, so I think we were probably right around the same time. Okay, cool. So 2005, I was at the national championships. You were, you were there. You won that year, I think, because you won every. Oh uh, yeah, I did. So you were at the uh, eight and the fifteen. Yeah, so you were you were at that that meet in Waverly, Iowa, your junior year, right? Oh yeah, yeah. So were you class of 05 then? Yeah, I, I was a five, and I vaguely remember seeing that race in the eight hundred and seeing you just demolish people. Um, and I think you, I think you might've broken a record fun, or something. I loved, I loved going to a D3 school. It was cool, right? Yeah. You went to Willamette, right? In, uh, where is yeah, that? Yeah. We say it's Willamette, damn it. Willamette. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious now. So we've actually probably run into each other at that event or we were within like 20 yards of each other at one point. So, um, it was cool to kind of like track back and see when, uh, you know, that you went to a D3 school and, uh, yeah. That we competed together. Well, so. if you were a decathlete, you were a real athlete. I just run around in circles. <laughs> but the decathletes, I always had the utmost respect for because you have to be good at ten different events. It's not even an easy thing to do. Well, that's the reason why I did it because I wasn't great at any one event. So that for me was the only way I could make all American because I was a, I was good at high jump and I was good at the one hundred and things like that. But I was yeah. not I was not you know all American or national championship class. So for me, I put it all together and just. Uh, you know, grinded it out and made it happen. So nice, uh, man. Congrats. What a great story. Thanks, man. But, uh, but you've got a great story and, um, you know, you were one of the top high school athletes in the 800 and the 1500 and you decided to go D3. And I'm curious, why did you decide to do that? Yeah, well, I grew up in Boise, Idaho, which isn't exactly like a hotbed of track field. <laughs> yeah, so right. though I was winning state titles, they weren't really in times that were, um, super competitive with states like Florida or Texas or California. Mm-hmm. So, D1 coaches were looking at me, but they all said, hey, you can walk on our team. We'd love to have you. But, um, you know, for me, I I really wanted to be a student athlete, and I wanted the student part to come first, and I wanted to have the full college experience. So, uh, you know, rather than being an indentured servant at a D1 program, like a lot of coaches were asking for, I thought, why don't I go to a D3 school where I can have a job and major in chemistry, which is what I wanted to study, and run when I feel like it, and not run when I don't. So I was a part of a, a fraternity as well, the Sigma Chi, and I really feel that you know choosing D three um, allowed me to have that that real true college experience. And I, um, you know, at the time there there were some frustrations, um, you know, with with the with the athletics, but ultimately it allowed me to practice winning and and save my legs for my my post collegiate career. Wow. So do you think if you had went to a D one school, you would have burnt out, been too burnt out to continue training for the you last You know, it's so funny. Years? It's hard. I think about that sometimes. You know, um, if I'd gone to a D one school, maybe I'd have gotten burnt out or maybe I would have, uh, accelerated at a faster rate and signed a bigger deal out of college. Mm. I think you can torment yourself with the what ifs. Yeah. All I know is that I'm 31 now. I've made two Olympic teams. I, I'm just so ecstatic with the way my life has turned out so far. So I'm just very appreciative for everything that I've, that I've had so far. It's amazing. So you graduated in 2006. So you made the next Olympics in 2008 and 2012. Is that correct? That's correct. That's amazing. So did you know when you graduated in 06 from a D3 school 
that, you know, really the next year was kind of like the qualifying year. So 2007, I believe, was the qualifying year. Did you think that you had a chance? Were you like on par in the top? Uh, do they only take three athletes from America or what do they take? Yeah, so in each event, America takes three athletes. So I, I knew when I graduated that, uh, you know, I'd have to find a way to be top three in America in either the eight or 15. And fortunately, the day, I think it was the day before, right after graduation, um, I went to the U.S. Championships and I went in ranked maybe 30th. And, 30th. You know, through some smart, 30th. And, but through some smart racing and, and, and quality tactics, I, I set a huge personal best at my first U.S. Championships and came out of that ranked second. Holy and so crap. that's kind of what launched my career. I was on, I graduated with a degree in, in chemistry and I was on pace to go off to medical school, but I decided to table that for a couple of years to really put all my energy into training for the 2008 Olympic games. And that second place finish kind of validated everything that I was doing. I, I just thought to myself, if I can just stay here, I don't even need to improve. I just have to <laughs> be consistent over the next two years. Then I'll achieve my dream of being a U.S. Olympian. And I was actually able to improve and finished uh, first at the U.S. Olympic trials in 2008 to wow. make my first Olympic team. And then, you know, when you do what, when you made one, you want to come back for more. I, I only made the semifinals in Beijing. So set a new goal of, of training for four more years and making the finals in London, which was, was just what I was able to do. I finished fifth in London, but again, to be that close to medals, you, oh, you want man. to come back for more. So Two here people. I am. I know, man, I'm a decade, I'm a decade older and I'm still doing it, but my goal now is to make the 2016 Olympic team and finally get that medal that's eluded me. And you just won the national championships in Oregon, correct? In the That's correct. Yeah, my sixth U.S. title. Yeah. And is that the qualifier or is next year, or what's the qualifier for the Olympic team? So that was the qualifier for this year's world championships, which will take place in August in Beijing, China. Uh, I'll have to go through the same process next year to make the 2016 Olympic team. So every year you have to try out again for Team USA. Uh, it's a rigorous process where they take the top 32 athletes or so and narrow them down to their three uh, that they'll actually ultimately select for the team. And it all comes down to one race. It's not like... One race, man. Yeah, it's unforgiving. You have to show up on the day and you have to perform. Otherwise, you wait for more years. Yeah, I remember I interviewed Brian Clay, um, who's mm -hmm. a decathlon gold medalist. Oh, I know Brian well, yeah. Yeah, and he, you know, the last Olympic trials, he, he didn't qualify during the Olympic trial. I think he got injured or or he, he slipped or he missed one of his marks on something. And uh, he didn't even get in top three. He didn't even qual finish the 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 two day event. So the trials, yeah, it's heartbreaking because you could be the best all year, but if you don't show up on that day, you don't go to the Olympics. Oh, I mean, you you might be the best in the world. You could be the the world record holder, but if if you something happens, you get tripped or you're, you're food poisoning or something something out of your control. Again, you wait four more years for another ch chance at it. So it's it's, it's, it's so really cruel and brutal, man. but. It is, but it's the only fair way to do it in a country like the United States where we have so many great athletes. You know, wow. there might be 10 or 15, 20 in an event that all deserve a chance to, to go. Um, you have to find a fair um, way to select that team. And yeah. as cruel as it is, this is the way we've decided to select it. And I think it is pretty fair. It's fair, yeah. It's just, uh, and it gives the underdogs a chance. You know, it gives people who may not have a chance to, to say, hey, yeah, if absolutely. I show up today and I'm strategic, like you've been many times, and maybe I can come from behind and um, and make it on the team. Maybe I can get third or something. So uh, I'm curious now, what is your mindset approach when you go into a big race? Is it different from race to race, or do you have the exact same Oh, absolutely. Approach? Yeah. I mean, uh, especially now at 31, I'm, I'm appreciating that even more, is that there's only so many efforts that you have in your body. I, I can yeah. only, we call it going to the well, you know, digging so deep and, and 
finding that extra little bit of adrenaline or or that little bit extra energy or soul that you can burn up there. Um, you can only call on that so many times. So, you know, if I'm in an exhibition race or a race that's really more training oriented than in a championship setting, you know, I, I can race at 95% effort. But I know that when and it when. comes to a championship race, you know, U.S. championships or World or Olympics, that's, that's when I save everything I got. And I'll, I'll you know, lead to win one of those. So an exhibition race, you'll you'll go at ninety five percent, and you'll still win at that race, or do you just not? Really not necessarily. Win? No, sometimes I get my butt kicked, but okay. Uh, <laughs> if, I, if, I, if, if it's a if it's a race that I think I can win without expending too much energy, um, you know, coming from small schools, from from Boise, Idaho, for Willamette, I learned to get through some races um, expending as little energy as possible because when you're a small school, when you're when you're basically a big fish in a small pond, they race you pretty hard. So there might be weekends. Back in college, where I'd run, you know, four or five times in a weekend. So wow. I learned to, to expend as little energy as possible, and ultimately become a great championship runner, and really save those those few efforts that you can call upon, um, you know, for your A plus hundred percent efforts for when they really really matter. So you know, case in point was the 2015 season. I I hadn't won a single race all year, and people had kind of ripped me off and said that I was too old to win U.S. titles anymore. But when I got to the U.S. championships. Um, you know, the, the increased level of focus, the increased level of professionalism, and just knowing that my body had been waiting all year to, to find out what it really had, um, you know, had in my legs, I was able to call upon that one more time and ultimately win my sixth title. That's, that's crazy, man. Yeah, I remember I just watched the uh, the race again before we got on the call, and I, you started out from the back of the pack. And you, you know, after the first lap, I think you were in fourth or something, and then, or maybe it was in the last 300, you were in fourth, and then... The last hundred, you just crept around the corner and passed three more guys and won by like three yards or something. It was pretty, <laughs> pretty inspiring. How, I mean, how does that make you feel when you're in the back of the pack almost the whole time? Um, yeah. Creep up. A little bit panicked, to be honest. So you're like yeah. 10, 15 yards behind so, the front. And people watching me probably thought I was injured. But uh, <laughs> no, I, I've always, I always say you kind of got to play the cards you're dealt. And, and I don't have the same kind of top end speed that some of my competitors do. Yeah. So instead of running huge positive differentials, um, you know, some athletes will go out and run their first lap four or five seconds faster than their second lap. Mm-hmm. My laps need to be much closer together. So I ultimately um, end up trying to run pretty even splits, but uh, it's funny. It looks like I'm, it looks like everyone else is uh, slowing down and, and I'm just accelerating, but really I'm, I'm just not decelerating. You're as just staying the same else. pace as everyone else. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but it, it usually puts me in the dead last, uh, after the first lap, and then I have a lot of work to do to get around people. So, in case in point, at the 2015 championships, I think I was probably, like you said, in six or seven with 300 to go, and I kind of peered around the corner and shook my head, knowing how much work I had to do. But if, if I just take it one step at a time and say, you know, move from seventh to sixth here, and then move from sixth to fifth here, and, and ultimately in the 800, if, I feel that if I can be on the leader's shoulder with 100 meters to go, then the, then the real race actually begins, and you yeah. can see the finish line and the crowds on their feet cheering you. and um, that's when the adrenaline just really peaks in your system and you find the superhuman strength that, that can carry you, you know, down that last hundred meters, even when every fiber of your body is telling you to stop. And it's much harder to sustain that top end speed. If you go the first lap, right, it's much harder to keep it all the way through the last 200. If you've already put your maximum energy in the first lap and a half. So it seems, yeah. Like- and if you look at most splits, the athletes are actually slowing down every single 200 slightly. So mm. it's not uncommon for your fastest 200 to be your first 200 and your slowest 200 to be your last. It's just about, you know, trying to maintain form and, and propelling yourself forward despite the fact that 
lactic acid and, and fatigue is just gripping your muscles. Mm. How much of a mental game is it for you before the race, uh, whether it be the night before, the morning before warming up? Uh, are you talking to the other competitors? Are you not talking to them? Are you in your own zone? Do you get in their head some way or do you just focus on your own game? You know, everyone's a little different, uh, but certainly the mental aspect of it's huge. Uh, having done this for, again, almost shoot, almost two decades now, I've learned what works for me. And for me to perform my best, it, it's almost tricking myself into thinking that, that it's not, it's no big deal. And even before an Olympic final, for example, I do everything I can to take my mind off the race, whether that's watching crappy TV or reading a good book or just chatting with my family. I want to think about the race as little as possible because it, it just gets, gets your heart going. And that adrenaline um, is something that you need to save for the race. So I try to keep my mind off it as much as possible. About an hour or two before I start warming up, I'll allow myself to do some visualization exercises and really imagine myself in that race and imagine different scenarios taking place and how I would respond to them. Uh, and then, you know, once, once you start warming up, you can really, really start to you know, allow yourself to, to embrace that, that sense of, of competition coming, you know, that fight or flight, you kind of embrace the fight a little bit more, but, but again, you, I know a lot of athletes, especially young athletes that, that beat themselves before the races even started by, by wasting that energy. I have done that so many times in high school where we would get ready yeah. for like a state championship in basketball or football, big playoff game. And I would hype myself up for the whole day in school, like wasting all my energy where the game came around. I had nothing left to give and I was exhausted. Yeah. Oh, I know it happened. And it happens more often than not. Yeah. That's tough. It's kind of like, you know, when you see Usain Bolt, it's like, he's just playing around. He's just like so relaxed. Um, yeah. And then he's able to turn you know, but it on. You'll look at, if you look at the starting line of, a, of a, like an Olympic final like that, you've got Bolt who's clowning around <laughs> and for him that, that works so well because it allows him to, Relax. Just do, let his body do what it does. You know, yeah. he's just letting his mind get out of the way. Whereas for other athletes, you'll see them extremely serious and extremely yes. focused on the line, and, and they they need to do that as part of their preparation. So it's funny how how different every athlete is, and mm -hmm. you just really have to find what works best for you. When did you? Was there ever a big mistake where you extended too much of your energy, where you realized, okay, I've actually got to just not think about the race at all until an hour before? Was there a big yeah, when I was monster? younger, when I was younger, I had a real hard time channeling my energy and visualize and, and, and saving it for when it counted. And it's gotten better and better, um, you know, as I've aged and, and put things in perspective. And there are actually situations now where I'll be, you know, getting ready to race and I won't have any nervous uh, energy or any adrenaline. And I have to kind of like remind hype myself yourself how, up. how big, how important <laughs> it is. Yeah, I have to hype myself up now and I'll be listening to, you know, um, music that'll pump me up and, and uh, chewing on some run gum and getting myself fully caffeinated and trying to amp myself up for the, for the fight. Cause at this point I've seen so much and I know how, how important or unimportant certain events are, but sometimes you need that. I mean, I know I need that, that, uh, that adrenaline to perform my very best. So it, it, it's a lot about just channeling your, your energy and, and being the best athlete that you can be on that day. It's like a dance. It's like you got to know how much energy, when to bring it out yeah. of yourself. It's like yeah. you really got to dance with it so you don't expend too much. I mean, again, it, like a quarter yeah. of a second could be a tenth of a second. You could lose it all. You know, it could be the difference between. I mean, most of our that. races, yeah, making the team or not is separated by less than a quarter of a second. So wow. it's, it's an unforgiving sport in that way. But if you are one of the athletes that has, has learned how to really control your energy and, and meter it out through rounds and. Uh, and, and in the race, you know, that, that can definitely be a huge advantage.
One of my favorite parts about my job is that I get the opportunity to travel a lot. And in fact, I'm recording this right now while I'm in Mexico. And actually, I was thinking about something that I wanted to share because I get a lot of questions from so many people about different side hustle ideas. So here's one for those of you out there that are on the go a lot like I am or traveling a lot. When you're staying in your Airbnb on your trips, have you ever thought about how you could be making extra money by hosting through Airbnb while your home is vacant? If you're interested in an extra stream of income, Airbnb hosting is an easy place to start and it's like giving your home some company while you're away. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Mm. What's your favorite race? Uh, event or, or actual competition? Uh, the event, yes. Yeah, uh, definitely 800. I mean, I do have a love for the miles because most people don't really know what an 800 meter is, but they say, oh, well, what's your fastest mile? And so even though my 142.8 uh, 800 time is, is much more competitive than my mile best, if I say I've run 356 for the mile, that seems to register with people a little bit more. Right, right. Man, that's insane. 356 for 1600? For 1,609 meters, actually, a full mile. Oh, my gosh. 356. Yeah. That's insane, man. I ran in the decathlon. <laughs> in the 1,500, I think my best. Again, this is after two days. It was like a 454 or something like that. But that was good running, though. Yeah, it's still a good running. <laughs> that's hard for – I mean, that's that's slow for uh, 1,500 compared to what you're doing with another 100 meters. Uh, that's crazy, man. 356. That's crazy. Uh, but 142 is insane. What is that? One of the um, – in the in the U.S. record books, is that top three? It's the top third four? fastest time, yeah, third fastest time ever by an American. What's the what's the record? Um, the record is one forty two six by Johnny Gray. And you're one forty two. What are you? Nine. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I'm close. Oh my gosh! It's so close. What's the is your, is that the goal to beat that eventually? Yeah, I'd like to. Uh, I ran my one forty two ninety five at the London Olympic Finals, and that's another. You know, if that's the perfect kid to just saying, hey, there's so much on the line and, and bringing your best product at the very highest stage of the game. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know that I can call upon an effort like that in any other situation. The so Olympics. if I'm ever going to get that record, I feel like it has to be in the Olympic final in Rio next year. Mm, that's crazy, man. So if you can walk us through the visualization process you had with the recent national championships, if you can remember what it was yeah. 10 minutes before the race and then... Um, and even the night before, do you do any visualization the night before the morning of, or is it all? Well, it's funny. Yeah, I do. I do work with a sports psychologist and, yep. and a lot of it's just about staying out of my own way. And so, yes. you know, when self-doubt creeps in, we just try to like squash it. Cause I don't, I don't think there's a, a more toxic, uh, thing in this entire world than self-doubt. And we do everything to just kind of talk or, or wrap my mind around getting, getting outside those self, self, self-doubt spirals. So, you know, as I was coming into this U.S. championship, I think I only had the 15th fastest time, and that wouldn't even put me in the finals, you know? And, and so we were just talking about how over the last 9, 10 years, my body's always found a way to get through the championship rounds better than anyone else. And I don't know if it's if it's just the way that my body's built or the way that my mind handles it, handles it or the, the way that the rounds prepare my body, but I always find myself feeling better in the third of, four, of three rounds. We actually run three round series. So wow. the third race uh, um, in four days, I feel better than the first one. So, and that's, it's kind of unusual, actually. Most athletes kind of feel worse and worse through the rounds. So I, I, I kind of just shook my head and I say, I'm not going to doubt myself or my competitors for that matter, but just know that, that I will feel better throughout the rounds. And 
And maybe I, and I thought maybe I would even set a season best through each round. And that's ultimately what I ended up doing. I had to run my fastest time of the season through each round to keep advancing and all to ultimately win it. Oh my goodness. And what was the final, uh, time? I won it in one forty four five. Wow. Yeah. Two, two seconds. Which off. was a season best. It was two seconds. It was a second and a half off my personal best, but it more, more importantly, it was, it was almost a two second best from, from my, the time that I had run to qualify for it. So it was really a case of bringing uh, an A A plus product when it counts, and uh, uh, at this point, like I said, I've only got so many efforts. So I'm glad I was able to call upon it at the U.S. Championship. Yeah. Uh, and now I've got it. Now that I've qualified for the World Championships in Beijing, I've got to, you know, again regroup and save that that energy for when it counts out there. Sure. And so walk me through what does your sports psychologist say, you know, before you, you the meet, or what's the process that you go through specifically in your mind or physically for me you know i'm one of those athletes where i kind of just got to let my body do what it does and get my brain out of the way so uh it's a lot of it's just you know talking do you have a, about do you have a mantra uh, or do you have like a saying that you say to yourself or anything like that you know my new mantra has been don't worry about anything unless you know think there's something to actually worry about because i'm kind of a warrior by nature and i just kind of realized that you know nine times out of ten i'll spend all this energy worrying about something and the issue ultimately resolves itself without any of my input or any of any of my actions. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny that I spend all this energy worrying about something when the situation is going to resolve itself. So I no longer I do everything I can now not to worry about the issues until a, a serious problem is actually you know on my plate. Mm-hmm. And then I'll and then I'll worry about it and I'll address it. But uh, I think that that's uh, especially if you're a warrior like myself uh, or someone that extends energy, um, you know, fretting about things. And that's a that's really powerful to not. To just kind of let it go and say this isn't it. This this could turn into a problem, but right now it's not, and I'm not going to expend energy worrying about it. Mm. And how do you handle a loss? Depends on the loss. I mean, there are some you know more than others. If if I lose in an exhibition race, I kind of just shrug it off. I say, all right, that that's me at ninety five percent, but I know what I can do at one hundred percent. When I lost in London and ran one forty two nine for fifth place, that one forty two nine would win an Olympic gold medal in every single Olympic Games oh. except Athens. It would have taken silver. Oh. And that was a hard loss to swallow because I, I really, I got done with that race and I sat down and I looked at my legs and I said, that is the fastest I can run. That is the greatest product <laughs> that I have ever, ever brought. And it still wasn't good enough. Oh. And the fact that it would have been good enough in every other Olympic Games just made it that much worse. And to be honest, I had to take about two or three months off after that to regroup and, and, and learn to love running again. It just seems so cruel and unfair, but uh, that's the sport, you know, you, and you get, you have some amazing highs and some amazing lows, but at the end of the day, you're living this lifestyle that lets you see the world and, and you really connect with your body and just, you know, I, I don't think there's a better way to, <laughs> you could spend a day than just working out and hanging out with your friends and eating whatever you want to and traveling <laughs> the world. So I, I feel very blessed. That's pretty cool. Uh, okay, so it took you a few months to get back into it. Was your body, you know, broken down as well, or is it more mentally, emotionally broken down? Yeah, I think more, more mentally than emotionally. Um, I was in great shape, but just the thought of going out and training, you know, we run about anywhere from eight to ten miles a day, and you have to really want something to put your body through that oh, day man. in and day out. And I, you know, after the London, I just thought, why am I doing this? Like I could be out having fun like all my other friends. I could be living a carefree life and going out and drinking and traveling and doing whatever I want. And instead of going to bed at nine 30 to wake up and run 10 miles. And, uh, for two or three months I did, I'd live that lifestyle, just kind of goofed around and hiked a lot, fished a lot, drank a lot of beers. 
but then you get to a point where you miss that that focus you know that, that being being accountable and being responsible for something and and I'm responsible for my training you know I, I really it's almost like a, it's almost like a child you know not not even close but it is this thing this living thing that you have to take care of and manage every single day and it's not just a nine to five this is a lifestyle this is a way of life that you have to every single day be conscious about taking care of. And did I hear you, you got started in track and field for a girl? Uh, yeah, I got, well, I got started in running for a girl. So <laughs> I was a soccer player growing up. And, uh, I remember one, one summer day we were at the pool and these two girls that I, I thought they were both very cute, but I had a specific crush on one of them. <laughs> um, they, they said they just signed up for the cross country team. And I laughed at them. I said, why would anybody want to run for fun? And they giggled and they invited me out. And so just to spend time with them, I decided to sign up for the cross country team as well. And I absolutely hated practice, but I loved that they were co-ed. And <laughs> I think at the time I was 13 or 14, I loved spending time with, you know, these girls and, and the guys on the team. I loved running with them too. So I think that sense of camaraderie and that, and that sense of being part of a team and, and just the, the, the fun, the fun times that we had, I had a really great um, high school coach by a guy named Tom, Tom Shanahan that made it fun and made kids want to come out and run for fun. That uh, That's kind of what kept me coming back for more, even though even though I'd shake my head and be like, we should be out playing soccer <laughs> or <laughs> doing something other than running intervals in the hot height of <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty boring. I'm, I'm curious now, if you would have never had that crush on those girls, would you be an Olympian? Yeah, I think that, uh, I think that you, I always thought about that, you know, like running running was going to find me one way or another. And if it wasn't to go out to be with these girls, it would have been, uh, you know, watching my sister on track and field and wanting to, wanting to, you know, see what I could do. I've always been, you know, kind of a curious guy and I've wanted to do everything. So when I was growing up, I, I played three sports every season. I'm, I'm not even joking. It was always soccer, ice hockey, hunting, fishing, golfing. You know, I, I did every single sport. So at some point I was going to run. And my, my body is as, as crazy as it sounds. It was, it was born to run the half mile. It's yeah. just what it does. I can't run a mile real well. I mean, I, I can run it okay, but not on a world-class level. And I can't run much of a 400. Uh, I can barely run a K or a six. My body is made to run exactly 800 meters, not 801, not 799, but 800 meters. And <laughs> it's, it's really astounding, you know, at this level, how dialed in your body becomes. And, uh, you know, you, 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 t you take another guy and we might look exactly the same, but he is born to run a mile or 400, for example. And mm -hmm. there's something about the way that your ligaments and tendons connect uh, with your bones and the way your heart and your lungs pump your, your blood. And it just all dials in for, for one specific event. And that's one of the things I love about track and field is I almost feel like there's an event for everybody because there are so many events. And they're built for so many different body types. You could, I'm on, I'm, I'm on a, you know, team USA and I'm sitting there having dinner with a guy who's 300 pounds, uh, you know, six, seven hammer thrower. And then you look to your left and there's a girl and she might weigh a hundred pounds and she's a marathoner. And you just laugh at, at how cool that team is, how diverse it is and how all inclusive it is. There's a, there really is an event for everybody. Mm. And how do you define yourself as an athlete or something else? I primarily define myself as a businessman and I love entrepreneurial business. And when I think about my job as a runner, I don't think about myself as a professional athlete so much as I think about myself as an entertainer mm. um, and a marketer. So my business is really entertainment and marketing. And 
I, I, I actually wrote a book, um, my book's titled Life Outside the Oval Office, and that's really talking about how I approach my job. So, you know, we call the, the track an oval, and that's, that's my office. So out, outside the oval office uh, is how I run my business, and, and it's approaching it from this mindset that I'm an entertainer and, and a businessman where I've said I've never once been paid to run. Even though I'm a professional runner, I've never once been paid to run. My salary comes from my sponsors. You know, Brooks Running is my chief sponsor. They, they provide me with apparel and shoes and, uh, and a living stipend. And my job is to market their products. You know, Solius Timing is, is my watch partner. And, uh, and when I'm racing in an, in an exhibition event, I'm, I'm marketing the, uh, the you know, whatever's on my bid. Exactly, the company that sponsored the event. So in that sense, you know, really what I do is marketing. Interesting. Now, when you win events, uh, is there any prize money on any of these? Uh, Oftentimes, yeah. So you'll make yeah, some so money if you put, win. The way we make the majority of our income is through, there's three different revenue streams. One is through sponsors. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one is through prize money that you will you can earn it at certain events. And then the other one is, is something we call appearance fees. So if you've built your brand up big enough that you have a good following and you'll fill seats, then sometimes new directors will actually give you money just to show up. Uh, and and race and they can use your name in their marketing. So, but unless you're, uh, you're saying Bolt, three, not many people are getting an yeah. appearance fee. That's no, not many people get appearance fees. Uh, you know, Bolt pulls down six figures every time he steps in the track just in appearance fees alone. So Crazy. that's a guy that fills seats. Um, there are there are some smaller meets that I can command an appearance fee for, but the vast majority of my income comes from sponsors, and that's how most Americans are. You know, uh, this has been a big issue for me in the past. Most foreign most of my foreign competitors get support from their government, you know, a lot of support. It's called being hearted in some countries and you get, you know, monthly stipends to live off of. And, and one of my friends had an apartment bought for him and his family by the country. The U S government doesn't give us almost anything. I mean, very, very minimal support. So all of all, if you're, if you're watching food when you're traveling, USA compete, yeah, exactly. If you're watching team USA, those athletes, they only get to where they're at through corporate sponsorships. So yeah. again, you know, that's why I'll, I'll always shout out my sponsor. I would not be a professional runner without Brooks running today. They yeah. are the ones that get me um, to us championships healthy. They're the ones that give me these great shoes to train in. And ultimately they're the ones that allow me to, to go home right. every night and, uh, and know that I have my own, all I have to do is wake up to train. I can train a hundred percent with a hundred percent of my energy, knowing that they're going to support me. Amazing. Yeah. I'm a, I'm on, I'm currently on the USA national handball team and, uh, you know, there is essentially negative funding for us. So I've been on the yeah, team for a number of years yeah. and, uh, I pay all my travel to get to, you know, training camp. I pay for all my gear, you know, they'll give us some like jerseys every now and then and a couple practice shorts or whatever, but I pay for my shoes. I pay for everything. And it's, uh, you know, it's expensive. It's really expensive to, well, it is. to live that it lifestyle is, yeah. and to be in that dream and just to play. Well, and that's, that's why what's so appalling is is every four years or every two years, I guess you watch you know your U.S. Olympic team, and we've got some great athletes that are out there winning medals for our country, and okay. many of them live they live below the poverty line, yes. and they operate in the red each year so that they can go out you know and and live their dreams, but yeah. but they're they're part of this five billion dollar entity that is the Olympic Games, five billion dollars exchanging hands. And the athletes get absolutely none of it, and that's so wrong. And I'm going. I've, I've fought it before, and I'm going to continue fighting it. But it's it's just so appalling that the IOC and the, all of the sponsors and the vendors all make so much money, and the athletes walk away with nothing. So why did, why I'm, is it I'm still that model. Why do they still do that? Uh, because there are so many athletes that that are 
are willing to do it for free, and it's a shame. Or, or it's because they have great funding from their, their countries. But again, Americans, we get almost nothing from our country. So uh, I, I feel that, that that model is outdated, and, and I, I intend to change it. I, do, I intend to do everything that I can to change that. Mm. You've been very outspoken your whole career about this and about you know sponsorships. And I think even one time I read that you know you had an eBay auction for a sponsor to have a uh, not a permanent tattoo but a temporary tattoo on your shoulder. Is that right? Yeah, in 2012, to protest the fact that USOC and IOC were going to make me cover up you know my sponsor logos, um, I actually auctioned off my left shoulder, two square inches of real estate space there, ad- advertising space on eBay partially just to see what kind of interest there'd be and partially because I thought it'd be a fun way to interact with my fans. Uh, but, but mainly it's a form of protest because in the, in the auction, I said, I'm going to have to take over this advertisement during the U S trials and during the Olympic games. And then people were appalled that I had to do that. Mm. Um, but ultimately I ended up um, partnering with a company that won the auction and received a check for $11,100 from Hanson Dodge creative, which is a marketing PR firm based in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And, it was just such a it's such a classic example that when you know when you take a risk and and are and aim to do the right thing, you know such good things can happen to you. And this was such a fortuitous uh, moment when when they they won the bid because I ended up we ended up creating you know tens of thousands of dollars worth of content that benefited them and benefited me and raised a lot of awareness about the plight of the average Olympian. And it was just a really really fun way to interact with the media and interact with my fans and ultimately you know, raise this, this, this issue that, that the IOC is getting rich on, you know, the labor of, uh, of what I call indentured servants, you know, where we're, we're indebted or they are indebted to us. We are the ones putting on the show. You couldn't have a show without the athletes and it's unforgivable to not compensate the athletes for their hard work. Mm. I agree. And what happened when you had that temporary tattoo on, did they still have to cover it up? Didn't I hear that? They yeah. So at, at both the U S Olympic trials and the games, I had to put tape over it. That was, that was their answer. Just put tape over it if, it if it doesn't match up to what their strict rules. Wow. And that actually got more press, So if you look press, at pictures right? or – sorry? That actually got more press because people were like, what's under the tape? Yeah. Right? Everyone's like, why is this kid running around with a piece of duct tape on his shoulder? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, which allowed me to plug Hanson Dodge every time they asked me that. So, sure, sure. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm very seriously contemplating doing the same thing in 2016. So, wow. you know. If you follow me on social media, I'm at Nick Simmons on Twitter, at Nick Simmons on Instagram. And, uh, and come January, I might be back on eBay. We'll have to see. Wow. Maybe I'll uh, I'll sponsor it for my book launch that comes out later this year. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. Now, I also saw that uh, you're pretty vocal against anti-gay laws, uh, especially in Moscow during the 2013 World Championships. Can you talk about your dedication for the silver medal that you won? Yeah, well, I just remember, um, you know, probably around the late 2000s, this this idea of gay marriage suddenly started creeping into pop culture, and and everyone was talking about it. And it just it just seemed like such a no brainer to me. How are you going to give two two Americans certain rights and not two other Americans? And I think to a lot of people in my generation, it just didn't make sense. It was right. so 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 clear that everyone gets the same rights. And so I was pretty vocal about that here on U.S. soil, and it had a lot of um, a lot of support uh, in, in in both communities, the gay and the straight community. And a lot of my my um, followers that identified as as gay, they said, "What are you going to do when you go to Moscow for the World Championships?" Because Moscow had recently passed some pretty harsh legislation that um, 
was very unkind to people identified as gay or transgendered or, or anything really. Um, and, and I said, you know, my job out here is to, is to win a medal. And I guess that wasn't a good answer, but it was the answer I needed to give at the time. I needed to be focused on, on my job, which was to win a medal. But once I'd won the medal, I, I wanted to make it mean more than just me selfishly running and seeing how fast I could be. I wanted to utilize that platform to get a message across. And so I dedicated that silver medal to my gay and lesbian friends who were fighting challenges, you know, domestically and abroad. And um, I guess I was the first athlete to kind of renounce those new laws on U.S. soil. And the fact that this was six months before Sochi caught a lot of uh, attention in the media. So, again, I was just just felt like it was something that needed to be said and, and was happy to play a very, very small uh, role in, in, you know, bringing that awareness to to um, the, the public, and and then when we when the when SCOTUS passed the uh, the new the new law or the new amendment that said that you know equal, equal rights for everybody um, in the U.S. and and for marriage equality, what a, I mean, what a great day for America! It was just so so awesome. But you got to remember, there are, are still dozens of countries throughout the world where it is punishable by death to be homosexual, and it's just uh, it's just unbelievable. And and so even though we are making you know big steps here in, in the U.S. There's a lot of battles that still need to be fought throughout the world for equality. What's your words of wisdom to maybe a young athlete who's, you know, maybe they're in track and field, maybe not, but they don't have the prototypical build or, or body like, uh, you know, some of the, a lot of the athletes that you compete against, and maybe they're not sure about, you know, what the right sport or event for them or if they're even yeah. a great or if they have the potential to be great what's some advice yeah. you give for a young athlete who's well uncertainty? yeah i just start by saying from the very first day i started playing sports people told me i was too small or now they say i'm too big or i'm too short or i'm too white uh i had every single sport i've ever attempted i've been too something that doesn't allow me to be good at it and in track and field you know d1 coaches used to say you know, I just can't take that risk on a, on a short, stocky white kid from Idaho. You know, I, I, you know, I just took that as such so offensive, you know, it's like, you never know what an athlete's capable of. And, and most certainly the athlete themselves doesn't even know what they're capable of. So my, my, my two big things are try everything because I promise that everybody's good at something and you don't even know what it is. I didn't start running until kind of later in life. But it wasn't until I realized that I wasn't going to be a pro hockey player or I wasn't going to be a pro soccer player or I wasn't going to be a pro golfer. I, I had to eliminate all those. And then all of a sudden, I found running and, or it found me finally. And so I encouraged everybody to try everything because you're, every, everybody is an athlete and everybody is going to be good at something. You just don't know what it is. It may be badminton. It may be curling. It may be some sport that you never even heard of yet. But there, there are so many great opportunities out there, and sports such a wonderful way to learn about life and to learn about yourself. You've got to, I think, you got to try them on, and ultimately, one is going to choose you. What's been the greatest moment, most proud moment for you over the last two decades? Uh, boy, those are those are tough questions. Uh, you know, graduating from college was a big one for me, simply because I I didn't love college. I wanted to drop out pretty much every day of the four years that I spent <laughs> in college. I saw college as getting in the way of some of the other things that I wanted to do in life. And um, the fact that I was able to persevere and see it through, I'm just proud of myself for finishing what I started. Um, you know, running has been easy. Running was something that, that I wanted to do. It's something that I did for free for four years in college. And, 
and uh, was willing to make so many sacrifices because I wanted to do it so bad and wanted to see how good I could get. So making my first Olympic team is a very, very proud moment, but it doesn't have the same sense of perseverance and sacrifice that maybe graduating from college did. So those are my two proudest accomplishments, making, making my first Olympic team and graduating college, but for two very different reasons. At the end of your track career and, and professional racing career, what would you want people to say about you and what would you want them to, to have accomplished that you haven't accomplished yet? Well, I'd like, I'd like to be remembered as one of the most consistent competitors. And, uh, you know, no matter what I want, uh, I would like people to say when, when Nick Simmons showed up to a championship race, whether he was ranked one or last coming in, you, you always knew he was a threat. And I think I've done a good job of that. I'd also like to remember, be remembered probably more importantly than as a, as a good competitor, as a consistent competitor, as a guy who fought for the rights of his fellow athletes. Um, mm. so I just, I just feel that, the athletes are, are absolutely bullied and tread upon, and we're operating um, under the rules and guidelines of governing bodies that, that take almost every single dollar and leave very little left for the athletes. And, uh, even, and even long after I'm done competing, I'm going to continue to fight for the rights of athletes because the way that the, the business model set up right now is so unfair and, and so unkind and unhelpful for athletes. It's wrong, and I'm going to do everything I can to change it. That's powerful. Yeah. It reminds me a lot of UFC. You know, the athletes in UFC don't really make much and it's all dictated based on the sponsorships that are, you know, the UFC get or whatever. And a couple of my friends who are in there say it's a, it's a grind and a struggle and they pretty much own everything about you. So yeah, it's tough, man. It's real tough. All right. It's, it's, I'm glad to hear that you're going to be the one uh, leading the charge for many years to come. I'll, I'll do what I can. <laughs> what do you see yourself doing after you're complete whenever that is? Besides, yeah, that's a great question. That. So, you know, I've been, been, it's funny, people have been asking me, what are you going to do when you're done running, you know, for better part of a decade now? And I kind of always was this, was this athlete that, that wanted to have this seamless transition between professional running life and, and, and after running life. And as an entrepreneur, I was presented with a pretty unique opportunity to partner with my coach, who's a, a fellow entrepreneur, and create a company recently. And this company is called Run Gun. And what we do is we, we've manufactured gun that ha that's fortified with caffeine, towering, and B vitamins, which are all shown to have performance-enhancing effects on endurance athletes. Mm. And this company we launched on October 14, uh, and it's just taken off, and it's been fun to, to grow this business with my coach. And I, I know that this business needs my attention, and as it grows, it's, it's going to need my attention more and more. But uh, Run Gun's been in business for nine months. We've sold a lot of a lot of gum. Uh, <laughs> you can buy it online at RunGum.com. You can follow us on social media at RunGum. Uh, but that's what I see myself doing is entrepreneurial business, and in particular, growing our company, RunGum. Nice. Yeah, I see. I'm on the the, the website right now. Is a big picture of you uh, flexing your muscles after a win. Yeah, I think that's the that was the win at the U.S. Championship. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and the fact that I was covered in Run Gun tattoo certainly helped. <laughs> I like it. Very cool. I'll have to try some out with my next run. I'm a, I'm a very, uh, I run about three to three and a half miles, you know, a few times a week just to try to nice. keep my body in shape. So I get exhausted from that. So I'll have to get some on my next. <laughs> Man, you need some Run Gun. So essentially, everything, everything that's in an energy drink is in that packet of gum. Wow. So again, caffeine, taurine, and B vitamins. The advantage here is that you don't have to digest anything. So it hits you five times faster through sublingual absorption. 
without any heavy or acidic liquid in your stomach. So if you're an endurance athlete or even if you're just someone on the go in the afternoons, someone that needs a little boost, run gum is your answer. Yeah, because if you got to drink a, you know, a, a recovery drink or a Powerade or whatever it is, you got all this extra weight in your stomach. It's sloshing around. You know, you might want to yeah. throw it up. You're, if you're pushing too hard, you might have to throw it up. You know, you can't really consume that much during that endurance right. race. You got to take little sips, right? When, when I need my energy, usually it's to, it's to perform, you know, on the track or, or in, uh, in an endurance athletic competition. And I don't want anything in my stomach, but I need those stimulants to perform at my best. So mm. that was the idea behind Run Gum is, is let's take the stimulants that we love in energy drinks or energy shots and let's get them into the system in a way that's, that's quicker and, and more effective than mm. through, uh, through digestion. So um, people, who, people who are caffeine addicts like myself love it. It's a little bit different um, caffeine boost than, than what you're used to, whereas if you're sipping on an energy drink or coffee, you kind of slowly dial up that caffeine jolt. If you chew run gum, you're going to go zero to 100 in a couple minutes. So mm. it really is that kick in the pants to get you out the door and get your run in or, um, or bring you to that level of, of amped you know, energy that allows you to, to tap into the, the best athlete that you can be and make the most out of your workout. Sure, yeah. Uh, I got a couple questions left for you before we wrap up. One is, mm -hmm. what are you most grateful for recently? Recently, um, that's, I'm, I'm the most the thing I'm most grateful for recently is my relationship with Brooks. Uh, I had been partnered with Nike for uh, about, I guess it was close to eight years, and you know I, I'm always grateful for what Nike did. They took a chance on a little Division three guy coming out of school, and and I and they set me up in Eugene, Oregon, which had been my home for seven or eight years, and. Um, I really loved, loved being a part of the team, the Oregon Track Club Elite that they set up down there. But I knew that, oh, I felt that my career was really coming to an end or my relationship with Nike was coming to an end. And, and I thought that meant that my career was coming to an end. But when, when I started um, speaking with the, the people up at Brooks Running and visiting Seattle and learning about the, the company, they call themselves the Run Happy Running Company, uh, I found this new, renewed sense of passion for running and the lifestyle and, and I really truly contemplated retirement um, once, once my contract with Nike expired, but having moved up here to Seattle recently and worked with the, the men and women at Brooks running, it, it, it's truly given me um, two or three, maybe more years of, of competitive running that I didn't think I had in myself. That's great. That's awesome. I'm curious about relationships and the drive. How is it, being in relationships uh, or, you know, how is it having a girlfriend or being in a relationship while you're so competitive and focused on one yeah. vision? Are you able to really connect with someone or be in relationships over the last decade or is it more tabled so you can put all of your energy into this vision? That's a really great question. And it's been, it's one that's been really tough for me. Um, I think that to be the best athlete you can be is a, is a selfish endeavor. And I've also thought that I don't want to aspire to be a selfish boyfriend or a selfish husband. So for, for me, personal relationships have kind of been tabled while I, I was really focusing on being the best athlete I could be. And I've tried to make a few relationships work and ultimately no one wants to feel second in, you know, to, to someone's career. So that's been really hard for me, but it, it also provides this like really cool way to look at it or approach the sport that, I've made sacrifices, but when I do decide to retire, there's all these other aspects of life that I can really throw myself into. And I think that running is, has taught me a lot of lessons about sacrifice and about um, dedicating oneself, you know, 
to a person or to a goal or to a cause. And I like to think that I could be a really great boyfriend or husband um, and, and know what it takes to, to make something, you know, like, like a relationship's a lot of work and I know how to work hard. I think I could be uh, a very, very good partner to somebody, but I don't think I can be that person until I'm done running. Wow. Do you think it's possible for other people to give a hundred percent to the sport at the level that you do or, you know, any, any sport and be a, have a successful marriage or a relationship? I think that everybody's different. And some people find that, um, having the, 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 the not only say distraction, but having the multiple interests allow them to maybe have the support that they need or, or have the distraction that they need from, from their primary objective, right, right. you know, whether that's running or, or if the primary objective is their marriage, maybe they're running, maybe they complement each other, you know, sure, sure. better than they just, they do distract from each part, other. But yeah, for me personally, as well. Exactly. It depends on your partner. It depends on who you are and, and how you guys work together. I just knew that for me personally, I needed to be selfish and I was very selfish in my twenties and now into my early thirties, I've been very selfish and doing whatever it takes to be the very best athlete I can be. And I have to be honest, I do look forward to the day that I can be a little bit less selfish and actually focus (laughs) on uh, putting someone else's needs first. That's cool. Wow. That's awesome. If at the end of the day, that everything that you said, everything you've done, um, people came down to asking you this question, you know, what are the three things that you've learned, the three things you know to be true about life from all of your experiences, and you could leave people with three things, three truths, what would that be uh, that you would leave? Ooh, that's good. Yeah, I like it. All right. Uh, and I'm, I, I consider myself a fairly introspective, spiritual person, so I think about these things a lot. Um, First of all, family's everything. Um, I have a really great family. My parents are still together. My sister's about to get married. Um, I'm very close with, with all of them. And, and family, it's everything. Um, no matter what, when, and then family's not just blood either. You know, my, my coach, Sam LaPray, and all his, his kids, they're all family as well. And, you know, in, in good times and in bad, I think we turn to our family to, or to celebrate or, or to get through the tough times. And so that, that's the number one thing that comes to my mind. Uh, the second one, is that uh, there's only there's literally only one thing it takes to be successful, and that's perseverance. Uh, every single successful person I know in every single walk of life has one common characteristic, and that's that they persevere. Because no matter what, you will always have obstacles. You will always have challenges. And the people that rise and overcome those, that persevere through anything that gets thrown their way, they are the ones that are truly successful. And... Uh, the third one, um, well, as an athlete, I'm just going to go ahead and, and <laughs> plug athleticism, but exercise every single day. And I'm not saying that you need to go run 10 miles like I do, but there's something about exercising that mm-hmm. that just enhances every single aspect of your life. Food tastes better. Um, just walking around or sitting or every single interaction that you have with, with the world around you um, is enhanced through being active and maybe your exercise is yoga. Maybe it's walking a little bit each day, uh, swimming. I I don't, I I always tell people it doesn't matter what you do, but get out and be active and love this vessel that you've been given this, this body that you've been given, uh, and just, you know, cherish the opportunity to, to interact with your world and, and really, um, you know, really get out there and, and live life to the fullest. 
I love those. Thanks for those three. Um, yeah. Final question before I ask, I want to take a moment with all of my guests. I acknowledge them at the end for what opens up for me from the interview. So Nick, I want to acknowledge you for your tenacious consistency, your hustle, your commitment over the years. I think the last decade specifically after college, it's, you know, I know how hard it is to stay in shape and to stay committed to a vision with that physical aspect every single day. And I don't think people understand how hard you actually work. And I probably don't even understand it, but I can get a sense of it that you are just so committed to your vision, to being the best physical specimen that you can be. And the 800 and the mile are some of the most grueling, uh, it literally makes you feel like you want to die sometimes when you run those events at the level that you're running them. So I want to acknowledge you for your commitment, for your courage to speak out, which could potentially make you lose sponsorships, could potentially make you not be able to race. Maybe they'll ban you. So I, I want to acknowledge you for that courage that you consistently have to speak out, uh, even with the platform that you have. And I would acknowledge you for being a creative entrepreneur during this journey because a lot of athletes don't look about how they can make something on the side or build something on the side. And then after they're done, they have nothing and they live off the glory days. So I acknowledge you for your, your courage, your wisdom, your uh, tenacious commitment and uh, for being an incredible human being. Thanks so much, man. Yeah. And my final question is what's your definition of greatness? Uh, what's my definition of greatness? Um, purpose. Honestly, uh, I, I used to think that it was happiness and, you know, happiness is fleeting. It comes and goes. It's, it's something to be, you know, strive for, but, but having a sense of purpose is, is probably the most important definition of greatness. And I was unable to learn that lesson until I got injured last year and lost my sense of purpose. And whether your purpose is to wake up in the morning and be the best athlete you can be, or be the best husband you can be, or the best father uh, everybody needs to have that sense of purpose. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful to have my, my sense of purpose back as an entrepreneur, as a brother and a son, and, uh, and as a runner. Nick Simmons, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom, my man. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Great question. And there you have it, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Again, if you did like it, make sure to head back to our show notes at lewishouse.com slash 205. Share this with your friends. If you have any athlete friends who would be inspired by Nick's mindset and his uh, vision and his entrepreneurial spirit, then make sure to share this with your athlete friends. Any entrepreneurial friends that want to learn how someone who is living at such a high level in something in their life, in, in sports, is able to do something else on the side and create uh, creative ways to bring in money for himself, then make sure to share that with your friends as well. LewisHouse.com slash 205. Again, thank you guys so much. We've got some big interviews coming soon. We do this every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So please subscribe if this is your first time on the podcast. Leave us a review over on iTunes or on Stitcher. And tell your friends about it. Let your friends know to listen to the episode and to the podcast. Again, lewishouse.com slash 205. Thank you all so much. You know what time it is. It's time to go out there and do something great.
At Metro, get an iPhone 12 with 5G and a dual camera system for $99.99. Take amazing pictures and share them instantly. And don't put up with life's yada yada. Yada yada. Like photo bombers. Zoom, crop out, yada yada. And bye. You don't take yada yada in life. Don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. Get iPhone 12 with 5G with no activation fees and nada yada yada. Only at Metro by T-Mobile. Switch Metro, bring your ID. This offer isn't available for customers currently at T-Mobile or that have been with Metro in the past 180 days.